0: I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us, and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time. And my guest is Posy Simmons, the writer and cartoonist.
1: Posey, tell me which book you've chosen. I've chosen Mr. Todd by Beatrix Potter. Have you still got your copy? Not the original one, which I must have been given right after the war, probably when I was three or four. And I was given the whole run of Beatrix Potter then And the only one remaining is Cicely Parsley's Nursery Rhymes.
0: And was it read to you then to start with, or did you read it yourself?
1: I was a very early reader. So uh, although it's got very difficult words in it, I think at one point one of the rabbits is called The Afflicted Parent. Um, I could actually, I could read most of it. I'm sure adults must have helped me. And because this is a particularly sombre and rather grim tale, I'm not sure at which point in the the canon of um, Beatrix Potter that that I read it. Certainly I would have read Flopsy Bunnies and Peter Rabbit first.
0: This one was actually written towards the end of her writing career when she was much more interested in being a farmer. And it almost feels, and this is unfair, she can't defend it, it almost feels as though she
1: was saying, OK, I will write something, it'll be this. She says at the beginning that she's always written about rather agreeable creatures, uh, although I wouldn't say Jemina Pabalduck, who also met a foxy was a gentleman, was, all, you know, was, a, was rather <laughs> disagreeable. Um, but she definitely says right at the beginning, I'm going to write about two disagreeable characters.
0: He says, I've made many books about well-behaved people. Now for a change, I'm going to make a story about two disagreeable people, which is quite a statement. Yes. Right at the beginning of the book. Yes. And what did it make you feel when you first read it?
1: Oh, I was terrified. I was terrified, but I knew that it was true, so that in it all the animals, the fox, the badger, the rabbits and the other animals that are described like otters, uh, I knew what they were because it was in the country and my father had a farm and uh, there were always plenty of sort of dismembered rabbit bones and and pigeons that had met a ghastly end or pff, bits of pheasant in the grass. So I knew that's you know, I, I knew about that. And I suppose it made other books that I had, like uh, the Alison Utley series of Little Grey Rabbit, seem rather sort of bland and evasive, because in those books, nobody ended up in a pie or was made into a roly-poly pudding by a huge rat or a thin actually a thin rat did it but Beatrix Potter was sort of gamey but 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 it was it she represented something that I knew about gamey is quite right. Um, did you know that Graham Greene had written
0: quite a lengthy dissertation on the work of Beatrix Potter? No, I didn't know Yes, I know. No, we, I didn't we stumbled know stumbled across that. So, yes, let me, let me tell you exactly what he said and see what you think. He wondered if she'd been having some sort of emotional crisis when
1: she wrote the book. When she wrote Mr. Todd? Hmm. I'm sure it's absolutely rich in these dark male figures, these... These evil-smelling dark figures. These, this, um, and the the thing under the, you know, when the the evil one is in the bed, hasn't taken his boots off. I think this is, and they are. Mm, I I think this is rich territory. But it also says quite a lot about Graham Greene. <laughs> I think it's a lot about Graham Greene too. Yes.
0: Can you give me a, a brief
1: outline of the plot here, so people understand quite why it's so dark? Well, it's an awful plot. I mean, it's it's child kidnap. It's um, and there's violence. There's no sex, but um, although Flopsy uh, Bunny is quite prolific, so there must must have been a bit of that. Uh, right, the plot is that a grandfather rabbit, Mister Bouncer, was put in charge of some baby rabbits, and he met. A badger called Tommy Brock, and they um passed a few, a few sort of rather polite words. And so Mr. Bouncer invited the badger into his house to have some some wine and to smoke a uh, a cabbage cigar. That's an extraordinary detail, yeah. isn't it? And before that, we hear about Mr. Todd the fox, um who is a, a terrible sounding person too. Uh, with sandy whiskers, and you never knew where he was. He sort of terrorised the whole neighbourhood. Anyway, there is Mr. Bouncer the rabbit, the grandfather, and the baby rabbits are sleeping nearby, and there is Tommy Brock the badger, who has a horrible grin the whole time. When Mr. Bouncer looks up, the baby rabbits have gone, and um, along comes Benjamin Bunny the father, he follows the tracks of Tommy Brock the Badger all the way to Mr. Todd's very sinister house right up in the crags. And he meets Peter Rabbit on the way and the two of them go on this journey and they peer through the very dirty windows of this awful place. There's
0: a lot of dirt and smell There's in this There's dirty
1: smell. It stinks of fox. There are bones and all kinds of unmentionable things all over the place. And uh, they look through the window and they can see into the kitchen where there is a willow pattern, big pie dish and a knife and a table set for one, but no sign as yet of where the baby rabbits can be. Uh, A shaft of light, because I think it's moonlight comes up, uh, which shines on the oven door and every time that the rabbits sort of tap the window, there's a little click, click, click from the the oven door. So they think, oh, my gosh, they're alive, but they're in the oven. And it's then that they think, well, how do we get into this terrible place? And so being rabbits, which I particularly like, they start burrowing and they burrow under the floor, burrow and burrow and burrow until they're right under the kitchen floor, at which point Mr. Todd comes back and smells badger and knows that Tommy Brock will be at home in his house. And the long and short of it is that Mr. Todd sees Tommy Brock in his bed with his boots on, and uh, he devises a way of giving Tommy Brock a sort of watery wake-up with a bucket. Tommy Brock fools him and is actually then in the kitchen about to cook the rabbits, and um, they have the most terrible, terrible, terrible fight, uh, which goes on and on. They rolled on the bank towards the river. And we never actually know who won. This is never never clear. Because it finishes, actually,
0: quite swiftly. The, last, the very last page. Old Mr Bouncer was forgiven and they all had dinner. Then Peter and Benjamin told their story. But they'd not waited long enough to be able to tell the end of the battle between Tommy Brock and Mr Todd.
1: That's that's a brave ending to a brave start of the book. Yes, because you actually wanted, you would quite like to know, I wanted to know who won, but it's quite a deft way of doing it that the rabbits, you could understand, they just wanted to be off, you know, and with the baby rabbits. As long as the other two animals were fighting, they were all right.
0: I think Mr Bouncer
1: got off lightly, though. Yes, I think so. And with Flopsy
0: on that one. She didn't speak to him at first, did she?
1: <laughs> oh, I like the way, actually, that Flopsy, you know, she belted old old Bouncer... And and she made him hide behind a chair and things.
0: And she didn't talk to him for a while as well, which is is the least of it. And And that's even before the rabbits came home.
1: Yes, she took away his pipe.
0: Also a a huge introduction to unfairness, I think. Well, of
1: course, yes. Well, I I think if we're going to be feminine, yes. yes. There's
0: um, When you're talking about the, the snagging on the barbed wire, there's an element of that in the book, isn't there? Because when they're looking for the baby rabbits, they see a bit of the sacking this, caught on a bramble. And I thought that detail really sang out to me because you wouldn't necessarily notice it, but it's absolutely vital for them. And they're really looking keenly, not just with their noses, but with
1: their eyes. Yes, they're looking keenly and they spot a mole trap, which the, the awful badger has set and I like the way that when Mr. Todd actually arrives on the scene, there's a jay that screeches following him up the plantation, which is what I knew about. Our Jays do that when you, you usually know that something's afoot. might be a cat or something about it.
0: So when, when you were reading it as a child, were the animals just animals or did you need to make them into humans as well? Did you recognise people in them?
1: because they're I mean they're anthropomorphized in a in a way in that um you know i mean they wear they wear clothes and um they they have tea and you know the baby rabbits are put to bed and Mr. Todd's house is full of the accoutrements of willow pattern plates and all that sort of thing so that that was made it sort of familiar on a human scale and of course the animals wear clothes, Mr. Todd is rather smart in a jacket and he's got a Walking stick, and uh, Tommy Rock wears very filthy old clothes, and apparently he never takes his boots off in in bed. You know, he's he's very he's a very filthy animal, and of course, you know, as a child one smelt foxes a lot and badgers. You smelt them. Foxes
0: definitely, yeah. Yeah, even definitely. even in in London where I am, you can tell you, when a fox has yes, been about. It's yes, very you distinctive. You can. Isn't it extraordinary? Pooh, golly. Mm-hmm. What about the violence, which is inescapable all through the book, and gets worse and worse the more the story goes on? So that by the time they're fighting, not only are they scrapping and biting, and one of the illustrations, the, the teeth are close to a neck, Yes, they're also throwing scalding liquids over each other.
1: That was the illustration I found very frightening, the actual fight, where and everything is smashed to smithereens around them. And
0: She says, the vases fell off the mantelpiece, the canisters fell off the shelf, the kettle fell off the hob. Tommy Brock put his foot in a jar of raspberry jam and the boiling water out of the kettle fell upon the tail of Mr. Todd. I think the fact that she says it's raspberry jam. It's raspberry jam,
1: absolutely. So immediately you, you get the fact that it was raspberry, it was red, Oops, and you might have gone. I don't know whether I actually went to blood or something, but anyway, it was funny.
0: Yes, it funny, but funny. also full of tiny pips.
1: But yes,
0: yes, this is very much nature red in tooth and claw, isn't it?
1: You would you would expect Mr. Todd to be sort of agile and be able to jump out of the way, but he, he doesn't seem he doesn't seem to be getting the best of. He of does of not, Tommy Brock. and
0: it's the wrong word to use. But Brock is dogged.
1: <laughs> He's dogged. Yes then they sort of roll out of the house. But then when they rolled out of the house, that was a sort of relief. Away they went. There were more sinister things like the house underneath the crag. It was when the sun uh, was setting and and the panes of glass in this awful house glowed fiery red. And I can remember thinking that was very scary. Um, But the whole thing of... When Mister Todd sets up the trap for Tommy Brock, who's lying in bed, which is the sort of pulley system with
0: having having discounted using heavy objects, yes, because he he might use
1: the coal scuttle on him, and then decides he's
0: going to do this much more elaborate
1: thing instead. Yes, and his legs get very near Tommy Brock's teeth, who's lying in bed, both snoring heavily and smiling, and also looking out of one eye. So, um, um, that bit, I found I found quite funny. And I was also sort of relieved that they weren't going in. Neither of them were in the kitchen about to, you know, light the fire or yeah. open the oven door. So that was a kind of relief. And
0: the little rabbits. Are safe. There's a lovely line, isn't there, about how many how many bunnies are missing? And at this stage, they're they're too small to have names, so yes. they're just. As somebody says there's there's seven babies, and and uh, all of them twins.
1: How can I can remember thinking they can't be twins. Because there would have to be eight.
0: Do you think that's something that um, Beatrix Potter, who in later life became a very successful farmer and mostly sheep farmer, do you think that's one of those phrases she would have heard? You know, it's sort of like a local joke. You know, I'm taking the sheep to market and I've got seven of them and they're all twins. Because it sounds such a throwaway line in a way, doesn't it? I'm sure,
1: yes. It must be a farming thing. It is a great line. Yeah, yeah.
0: And of course, Beatrix Potter is inseparable from the illustrations, absolutely inseparable. I mean, one way without the other would be all kinds of wrong. Um, what first strikes you about the, the drawings? And what, what first struck you when you were a
1: child? Because I like drawing very early, I like the inky black and white drawings better first, than the colour plates. Yes. And the fact that you could see Mr Todd in that you haven't really met him, yet. although there's a frontispiece in colour where you see him in his finery. But he he sort of talked about in advance, you know, he terrorized water birds and otters and he his house was here, it was there. Um and you saw in the little inky drawing him very tiny in the background. So he was a kind of lurking menace.
0: And equally the rabbits looking through the window, which I think they do with difficulty, don't they, because it's dirty. There's <laughs> dirt everywhere. It says, there were preparations upon the kitchen table which made him shudder. There was an immense empty pie dish of blue willow pattern, a large carving knife and fork, and a chopper.
1: Yes, the chopper is appalling. Yes, yes. Well, no, the empty pie dish, bad enough.
0: I don't think we had a pie dish in my house, actually. That's obviously why it resonates so much. I found them deeply worrying objects. (laughs) I'm not sure why. But yeah, the, putting that in. And because in the illustration it's it's set for one, you know, very precisely, you know,
1: as as in the best households.
0: Yes, yes. There's nothing nothing left to chance. Of, often
1: when she draws um, household objects, the, the containers are very much probably like Beatrice Potter had, the fact that there's a willow patterned pie dish. But it's interesting, isn't it, that those
0: drawings, which are the drawings rather than the, um, the watercolours, are, are done in such a way as to give you a very quick idea of what the world is. And I have to say that's, that's what you do. You know, you, you give, in, in each frame, there is an instant recognition of where people are, what they're doing, what they're about to do, and an entire history encapsulated in a very small space. And that's, that's what Beatrix Potter does.
1: I think that's what, uh, especially with illustration or writing in illustration, you've always got a, a choice of what you're going to write in words or what you're going to do in a picture.
0: The scene outside Mr Todd's window of things that had much better been buried, rabbit bones and skulls, a shocking place and very dark. And that's, it isn't illustrated. It doesn't have to be. I mean, that the picture in your head at yes. the end of that is yes, so does it
1: but um pictures are are just brilliant for setting the scene also you never really have to describe characters you just draw them um and she does this i think brilliantly that all the things that go in the text part of it uh like in the past he you know he he terrorized the water birds and all the rabbits couldn't bear him all those things which are in the past, that's done in text because it would take forever to draw what you did in the past. And then you're drawn into the present with uh, Benjamin Bouncer. I mean, it's very, it's cleverly done. It is. And of course, initially she was writing as to the um,
0: children of the family of her nurse, who was not much older. than I me, mean, the nurse wasn't much older than her. And one of them in particular, Noel, was ill in bed. So once she'd run out of things to say about what she'd been doing that day, she started telling these stories to him. And there's still an element, isn't there, that she is sort of writing to one child, You know that she's aiming these stories particularly at a child who never changes in age, who will not grow with, with, with any other knowledge
1: but will find each story fresh. Yes, I think so. I think the fact that she also adds in characters that we know already so that um Benjamin Bunny and Flopsy, of course, are the parents of the Flopsy Bunnies, and then Benjamin Bunny then meets Peter Rabbit, who is also one of the first books I read. so she's sort of reminding her imaginary or perhaps real reader, little reader uh, of things he or she may have already read, and I felt somehow I was included in that, although I couldn't have put that into words.
0: Even though this world is palpably unsafe, particularly if you're a rabbit, there is still something about creating a world that's so specific that as a child is immediately recognisable, isn't it? Because after all, the world you know as a child is usually quite small. It is the parameters of your house, and although you know, you're in the garden at the far end by the barbed wire, it's still a world you know. So what she, what she does is create this world and then say, and I'm going to tell you exactly what happens in it. We're not going to go anywhere
1: else. No one, you know, no one gets in on a boat and sails away. She describes things just enough, and she does. I mean, of course, I immediately place the fox's den in somewhere I knew. I mean, there was a chalk pit near us, and uh, that's where it took place in my in my head. She lets your imagination do quite a lot of work, and the other thing is because the language, some of the language is difficult. That also means that you say the words, or you tried to pronounce some of them and maybe adults had helped you and because you stumbled over them when I came to read it quite often I would say the whole phrase in my head I mean like I think I've mentioned the afflicted parent so I would say the afflicted parent Um, uh, and I think it's a phrase I then would bring out for my the stories that I would talk about in my doll's house oh the afflicted parent (laughs) so um
0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Where did you go to read if you weren't being read to? Was there a place in the house that you liked to tuck yourself away?
1: Yes, that it it was um quite a sort of rambling victorian house and there was a back staircase and on the first floor landing there was a large window with a very nice big windowsill well big enough for a child to sit with your back to the wall and um and it was is where you could watch the sunset as well as reading so that was my favorite place
0: with cushions or without cushions? It was without
1: cushions. I think when you're little, you don't need cushions.
0: That is true. I, I would love to go back to that I'd, stage. I, <laughs> I would
1: dearly. I certainly need cushions now. Many
0: cushions now. Was this an influence on you when you started drawing and painting?
1: Was Beatrix Potter a specific influence? If I drew animals, definitely I was influenced by Beatrix Potter. that that if I wanted to make them real, I would think of the characteristics that uh, Beatrix Potter especially gave to creatures like foxes or indeed cats. Yes, I, I like drawing cats. And so Tom Kitten and was a sort of template. Other artists whose work, uh, I mean, I like E.H. Shepherd, obviously, who, who illustrated Winnie the Pooh. And in our house, there were old copies of punch put together in, in big volumes. And some of them were, were my grandparents. They were Victorian. They went right through up to the 30s. And a lot of those drawings um, it influenced me. There was Ronald Searle who did How to Be Top with Molesworth. I really liked the way Ronald Searle drew the school dog. So my dogs were often like the school dog that by matron in the leg
0: what all of those
1: have in common
0: which is exactly what what you find in in your work is that you can go back and have another look and there's a detail you've missed it's incredibly detailed do you do you draw as you go do you make notes in drawing form as you as you go about the
1: place i keep a notebook i've learnt to now to keep my notebooks very small so i can hug them to my chest and and sort of do rather surreptitious notes because um, if you draw uh, on anything bigger, people always come up to you and say, Oh, can you draw me? And um, Or can you draw me Bart Simpson? Or and anyway, oh they,
0: they. That must be the cartoonist equivalent of having a selfie done that they want to. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> quick, <laughs> quick
1: drawing from you. <laughs> yeah. So I often draw, uh, I quite like going by bus because you can, and I live in London, so you can see, especially in a traffic jam. You can see, oh, what are people wearing on their feet? Are people wearing zebra stripes? Um, are new flappy trousers back? Who's wearing a mask? Yes, you can ask questions. And um, Did you used to go onto the table when
0: you were little and sit amongst adults? Yes. I used to do that. And then yes. you get that strange juxtaposition of the adult conversation above and the strange immobility
1: mostly of their legs. <laughs> yes. So you saw their legs and shoes... And occasionally, and I used to think this is so wonderful to be a lady that uh, you occasionally the ashes they all smoked like chimneys. Um, occasionally, a, a hand would come down with red fingernails, and there would be lipstick stain on the on the stub of the cigarette. I you think, gosh, that's chic. Well, I didn't say chic. I thought that. Oh, this is wonderful. At
0: one time, that was the absolute totem of grown upness, wasn't it? And there was all the ritual of it, wasn't there, of you know what what cigarette you smoked and how many you got at the time, and anyway, yes. but it is it is extraordinary that isn't it, as a child, how you how you view the world through those things which you can't properly interpret, which is exactly what Beatrix Potter does. She shows you something, the badgedger going after baby rabbits literally is an appalling thing, but she never shows you the actual death of anything like that. She might tell you the aftermath when they go towards Mr. Todd's house, there are rabbit bones strewn around, just as there were when you were a child. But she doesn't actually say, I will
1: I will show you death. No, she, do, she doesn't do that. She, she implies, I mean, she implies it, you know, that Tommy Brock has got it in for the moles and he's laying traps. And, you know, I think I wondered on the way, ooh, what, mm, how would that happen? Um, so you, you realise, you know, there was quite you know quite bad things going on just to be um controversially brutal for a moment is
0: beatrix potter a good writer
1: i think she is and this especially in this particular book uh, i think it's i mean it's it's a grim tale i think the the build up is done very well i think her her choice of language the way it, it's a sort of quiet build up of the background the the sort of menace is quite is done from afar, and then then it gathers pace with the kidnap and then the following the footsteps of the awful badger, the two rabbits it it's done very very well because as a child, I was so glad when. Benjamin Bunny and Peter Rabbit together—they, you know—they they were able to. I mean, that was—that's what I would have done. I would have at a distance. I would have been as afraid of of Tommy Brock as the rabbits were, um, but I would have tried to follow, you know, the clues of the footsteps, and then the the sort of denouement of the the terrible fight, which is kind of. Happens in the house, causes turmoil and smashes things, um, but then rolls out of the house into a sort of oblivion. No, we don't know. The rabbits don't tell us. Bertrick Potter doesn't tell us who won.
0: A little boy wrote to her afterwards and asked exactly that, and she just said they're still fighting. <laughs> they're still fighting. It's still terrible. They're still fighting. Um, I'm I'm asking about her writing really because obviously what what you do is. Is so bound up with humour and wit and seeing the world along that very sort of a lateral way of thinking. I know terrible things are happening, but let me show you why some of them are funny. She's not a humorous
1: writer. She's not a humorous writer, but there's, but the, I mean, ha ha ha. But there's plenty of of uh, irony uh, in her in her observations. I mean, she knows uh, animals very well. So that uh, you know, making Mrs Tiggywinkle a laundress and pinning out her all the hankies on the thorn bushes and things. And Jemima Puddle Duck, who's rather rather silly duck, but but um, there is the Foxywicks whiskered gentleman, terribly, terribly smart. So it, it, there are there's humour. Uh in Mr Todd itself, uh it's where the grandfather, Mister Bouncer, invites Tommy Brock in to to have a, a disgusting cabbage cigar, uh, and uh, or when they get stoned, as you said. Uh, <laughs> no other way I mean, around it. it. it yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's it's very that that's very funny.
0: And of course, the success of that is that every single character you mention, I can see. I can see them straight away. The ones we're not talking about, Jemima Futterstock, Mrs. Tiggy Winkle, they're so impressed. And impressively enough, she she was very in control of that too because when Peter Rabbit and the first books were a huge success, she was the one who came up with the doll, the, the toy of Peter Rabbit. So she was in charge of the merch, the merchandise, from the first, which is extraordinary, isn't it, to even been thinking like that. Somebody who started out not aiming to be a writer, in fact, Mm. wanted to be, you know, a a botanist at best, but, you know, was incredibly adept.
1: And was supposed to be a sort of diligent daughter. Yes, yes.
0: absolutely. And, you know, her Mm. her love of, you know, mycology and wanting to be, you know, a a learned person along one particular line. And this, and what we're talking about now, is is probably then a million miles from what she imagined. And yet she saw her way through to making it her own, despite having a very sort of solitary and, and restricted childhood.
1: Yes. I suppose if you saw her life backwards, you would realise that she became this very, very canny farmer who probably always got a good price for her sheep and, you know, knew what field on the fells to put them. So perhaps she always had that in her. I'm also thinking of her childhood when she actually dissected things. So this, to me, suggests somebody who wanted to know how things worked. I mean, it's, it's more than curiosity to, you know pick pick some old bird, dead bird to bits. Um, I didn't know about that as a child, but latterly I find that uh, very interesting. And I don't know when it was that I discovered that um, Mr. Todd, Todd is the German word for death, and I can remember wondering whether... Beatrix Potter actually knew that whether she'd done it on purpose
0: Her publisher didn't want her to call the fox Todd he just thought it was a bad word and she says it's an
1: old word for fox Because I I then looked it up, it's an old word for fox and and the
0: publisher didn't want her to use it which now seems a foolish thing You and I first met and inverted commas around that, sadly, because we were both on Zoom and I was giving you a prize for the Comedy Women in Print prize for the graphic novel. That's and right. of course there was I was one of the judges, it was a big field then. Um has has that improved the, the way of people thinking about the the graphics and the comic novel? Or is it as as somebody said, Oh, you know, then then you think um, you're asked, you know, maybe I should um, write a proper book after this and leave out
1: the, the pictures. Do you, do you think we have moved on? I think the whole field has got huge, um, especially here. It's grown and grown. I mean, now there are, you know, comic shops and festivals. It's obviously not not as big as a country, say, like France, which has had such a huge tradition of of uh, what they call bon Um And it's, I mean, I was amazed going to France in the 80s, going to a big bookshop, which is called FNAC, seeing children on the ground reading comics and adults reading comics. And uh, so now it, it's it is kind of everywhere. I think to actually make a living out of it is, is probably hard. I know in France they, they have a, a big discussion about, you know, it's only a tiny percentage of the authors who actually make a living out of it. but Because um, it's very labour-intensive, you know, you write it then you've got to draw it. Or um, well, some people, of course, only write and somebody else draws. But
0: I suppose the, the advantage when you are writing and drawing it is you can keep the characters so close to you so very close. Rather than having some picture in your head that then becomes translated by someone else, you know exactly who they are.
1: Yes, I think I, I think I do. I mean, when I'm the the faces and the well, the characters are actually the first thing I, I do. Having got a, an idea of the vague structure of a story, I actually work on the characters in a, in a notebook, and it's really in a way like a casting couch you've got a a rubber in one hand and, you know, you draw a face and you do eyes, nose, mouth, and you draw, maybe it's around. And you think, no, no, I hate the nose, rub out the nose, draw another one. "Mm." And so, and eventually it's by a sort of process of drawing and redrawing that you eventually have a moment of recognition and say, I know you. um." And also you've got to make these decisions because if you, give them blonde hair to begin with and actually as the story develops you think actually they should have red hair you've then got in the plot say well actually she she dyed it (laughs) or um, (laughs) (laughs) when you were describing
0: that you were sort of glancing up is that because I know you work with a mirror in front of you don't you do you do you use yourself as a reference point all the time despite what the character you're drawing
1: not really and when I don't want to stare at myself at all, so there are usually lots of postcards and stuff stuck on it. But if I want to see what happens when someone is going, you know, pointing or, I don't know, just um, twiddling their hair around in a cork strip above there, you know, I'll get up and have a look and um, just see what. Well, it's particularly good for hands, but sometimes it's good for if I stand back a bit. Seeing you know where the weight is on your body for doing certain things—it's it's quite useful. Do you keep any pets for reference? No, alas, no. I I haven't I haven't. Um, there there was an extremely engaging cat who used to come in, and um, I like I liked its intrusions a lot.
0: They are they are very good company, aren't They're they? Good company. Yeah. But so are dogs. I have to stick
1: up. For, yes. For dogs yes.
0: When you're concentrating then on on the minutiae of those things, do you get occasionally bogged down in it and feel, I must stop here, I must stop here, I must move the story on? Or is that just a really enjoyable
1: part of the process? It's difficult to say, because the first two, uh, what turned out to be graphic novels, were actually done as serials in The Guardian. And I was given a 100 episodes and the format. So the first one, Gemma Bovary, was was kind of three columns wide by the depth of the paper. So a rather strange giraffe-like shape, which I was used to, horizontal shapes. So, you know, for a comic, quite odd. And I was told it was going to appear every day. And because I work quite fast, I thought, well, I'll do about 25 episodes up front and then I'll sort of get on the back of it and sort of be a bit like Charles Dickens who I rather admire in this respect and um, kind of see what happens with the story, kind of ride it. And bad decision because my rate of drawing couldn't keep up. Uh, So by the end, I was only about six episodes ahead and I had to make decisions terribly quickly. In some ways, Good, Because when you're up against it and you're sort of sitting on a pile of hot conkers, um, your imaginations, you know, you get sparks and and, uh, you think of things which if you've had six weeks to think about, you might not have done so, uh, might not have got there. And so I remember that in my arc of the story in Gemma Bovary, which is based on Flaubert's uh, Madame Bovary. I'd, I'd written that, like, about episode 90, like uh, Madame Bovary, Gemma Bovary is going to commit suicide. And I can remember then, in rather hurry, in my rough, sort of drawing poor Gemma kind of in a terrible state and um, counting out her pills and and then writing the note to her husband Charlie and... And then being found, and in fact, she wouldn't die i I kept she kept sort of sitting up and 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 um sort of in a way saying, "I don't do this, and I was going die and she she wouldn't and um and then I realized that actually her character had changed, and she wasn't somebody who would commit suicide, she was somebody who would reinvent herself and she'd be all right, and so I very quickly had to had to think of a way of I had to kill her rather than she doing it
0: so the characters really do take on in your head it's it's a <laughs> it's a big conversation, and I wonder whether um I was suspected with uh Beatrix Potter that her world that that she created on the page with these animals and the vivid n- nature of how they live and behave was in some ways company for her you know she had a she was a solitary child she was you know, by, by dint of when she was born, not not much was expected of her, and much of her education was done mm. under her own auspices. But I don't think the same can be said of you. You you seem to be part of a very companionable world.
1: Yeah, I I obviously lived lived in a world where I, I was much freer in in some ways. Though I was solitary because my brothers were older and went off to school, and my brother and sister were much younger, and so for a, quite a long time I was. I was on my own. Uh in of course I had friends and things but I at home there was nobody near enough my age except in the holidays.
0: Oh and you went to boarding school too didn't you? Yes. So, yes. yes.
1: I I would write stories by myself and and talk and talk to the characters I can remember doing it very very much when I was sort of 8 9. Um but I I you know I'd like to think of Beatrix Potter on her own. I mean, she dissected the animals, but but she also kept them. She had, didn't she have rats and rabbits? And...
0: Yes, yes, mm. they had a positive little arc mm. at home, she and her brother, yes. Yes. Well, whatever the genesis, I can't thank you enough because your work gives me, and millions like me, such pleasure. Thank
1: you, Posey. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Posy Simmons. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at twiceuponapod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast.